If you have Bibles, um, go ahead and make your way to the book of Hebrews. Uh, it's near the very end of your Bible. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles uh, that Dana referred to just a moment ago, uh, our text today is going to be on page 1007. Uh, last week, I know many of you were able to be here last week, we kicked off uh, a series that we're going to be in over about the first half of the summer or so. Uh, the series is called Rhythms of Grace. Uh, and in this series, we're going to be looking at these nine rhythms, uh, nine habits, nine pursuits, might be other words that we would use, that really seek to help us answer the question, what does it look like to faithfully follow Jesus Christ? What does it look like to be a faithful follower, a faithful disciple of Jesus? Uh, this morning, we're talking about the first of these rhythms. We're talking about gathered worship. And gathered worship, uh, as I thought about it this week, is one of the more awkward rhythms uh, to preach about because you're here. Because you're here. Uh, because you being here this morning means that probably, for at least many of you, this is a rhythm, a habit of your life that you already value and that you already practice. And it's actually those who, who aren't here right now, uh, who won't hear this, uh, and probably never will hear this, that might most benefit uh, from hearing it. But here's what I'm hopeful about and confident in, that God will do a couple things today. Um, that, that for those who do gather, and maybe this describes you, those of you who do gather, but you do so primarily out of duty and discipline, I'm hopeful that God is going to this morning begin to stir again in you a delight uh, and a desire in gathering for worship. That this would not be for you only something that you have to do or should do, but something that you really get to do, that you'd really think that and believe that. And then second, my hope is that out of our deepening appreciation, out of our deepening understanding of gathered worship, what it is and why we do it, that we will all be further equipped to have gracious conversations with the people that we know in our lives who profess faith in Christ, but functionally in their lives really devalue or diminish or neglect uh, the gathering together of the people of God. So I want to dive uh, right into our text this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Listen now with open ears to this book that we love. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord God, we wish this morning to see Jesus. By your Spirit's power, give us eyes to see his glory. And it is by him and through him that we pray these things. Amen. The backdrop for this passage in Hebrews is that there are some Christians in this church, uh, the churches to whom this letter is being written and, and circulated, some Christians that are withdrawing. Uh, they're being tempted to wander away and waver in their commitment to the faith. Uh, they are, as the author says here, neglecting to meet together. 
And in the original context, uh, as Christianity grew and expanded in the second half of the first century, a lot of that withdrawal probably was due to the threat and risk of persecution. Uh, the, the, the Christians that were growing in that second half of the first century were increasingly viewed as a threat to the Roman Empire. And not to mention that the threat Christians had always been to Jewish people who did not recognize Jesus as Messiah, and now we're watching by the hundreds and thousands people convert away from Judaism and becoming Christians. So this temptation uh, to withdraw, it's an understandable temptation. But what the author is driving at here in this passage is that it actually puts these men and women at greater risk. It puts them in greater danger to withdraw. That in seeking to preserve their lives, they actually are risking their souls. They're risking what the author of Hebrews has already said back in chapter 2. They're risking drifting away. They're risking neglecting this great salvation that has been purchased by Jesus. So right from the get-go this morning, uh, I want to acknowledge this. Uh, There are, there always have been, there always will be, there are risks to gathering and to being committed to a local church. But those risks pale in comparison to the risks of withdrawing or the risks of neglecting to gather. Now in our day, in our day, the primary risk that we experience is not persecution. We live in a time and place uh, where we have been afforded freedom of religion, uh, freedom to assemble for worship. But there are still temptations, there are still pressures to not gather with the people of God. What might some of those be? Reputation is one. The fear of being associated with uh, certain aspects of what Christians believe or of being associated with Christians themselves uh, and the bad examples that unfortunately Christians are sometimes as they live their lives out in the world. As I mentioned before, we, we don't experience anything like the persecution of the first century. Nothing like that. But in our society, there are a growing number of people who view Christians not only as backward or irrelevant, as has been the case for a long time in our culture, but increasingly we're being viewed as harmful, and our views being viewed as harmful to society. So reputation is one. Apathy, ignorance, or laziness. We might put that under an umbrella category. Those might be reasons. Uh, not seeing the need or the purpose of gathering together, or maybe seeing it, but, but not really caring a whole lot. Another one that maybe is often overlooked, vulnerability. When you don't want to gather because you don't want to be known for fear that if you are known, you won't be accepted or welcomed. Another one is independence. Right? You, you only want to do what you want to do. Uh, you don't want to be burdened by the lives of other people and the problems of other people. You don't want to be attached. And so if things get difficult or if the grass just happens to look greener in this other place, you want to be able to pack up and to hit the road relatively quickly, not being attached to anything or anyone. Another entire category would be past wounds. Uh, You've been hurt by the church. And so to gather with the people of God does not sound like a gift to you at all. It sounds more like a nightmare. Now, this is not by any means an exhaustive list, but what I want you to hear this morning is the range. Do you hear the range of that? There are, there's more than one reason that Christians withdraw 
Some of them are rooted in defiance. Some of those reasons are, are rooted in laziness, but not all of them. And that sometimes is our temptation for those of us that do commit to gather regularly. We can become so committed and disciplined in that and even self-righteous in that that we assume that anyone who's not is either lazy or defiant. And sometimes that's the case, but other times people withdraw because of weakness. Uh, they withdraw because of shame or hurt. And so as we walk in love with one another, we need that whole range of possibilities in mind if we're going to care for one another well. If we always assume that it's laziness, if we always assume that it's defiance, we're going to further wound people who are wounded. And on the other side, if we always assume that it's woundedness, then we'll avoid a healthy and gracious kind of challenge and encouragement for people to come who are lazy and who are defiant. Regardless of the specific reason, here's where there is always commonality for us with the original audience of Hebrews. That there are for us, as there were for them, risks to gathering and to being committed to a local church. You will risk reputation. You will risk vulnerability. Uh, you won't just risk your independence. You, you'll lose some of your independence if you really are committed to a local church. You will risk being wounded. It happens. And yet, all of these risks, too, pale in comparison to the risk of withdrawing or neglecting from the gathering of God's people in worship. So this text includes three exhortations, three challenges and charges to the reader. To reject these is to put ourselves at greater risk. But to heed them, and I hope we see this more this morning as we just walk through these, to heed them is to experience God's gifts. It is to experience truly the grace of God in a way that strengthens and sustains us. So we'll spend the rest of our time this morning considering these three exhortations. When we gather to worship God, that is our primary communal experience of these three things. Drawing near, holding fast, and stirring up. Drawing near, holding fast, and stirring up. So first, drawing near. Uh, the book of Hebrews, if you've never read it, please make that time and space in your life. Read the book of Hebrews. It's a treasure in our Bible. And particularly for the way that it so explicitly connects the shadows of the Old Covenant with the substance of the New Covenant. There are a few other texts in Scripture that help us so succinctly and so clearly see that this is one story. That the Bible, that Scripture is one story. It is the story from beginning to end of the great work of God and his redemption. One of the primary themes in the book of Hebrews is that of drawing near to God. Under the Old Covenant... God's presence dwelt in the temple. Uh, God's presence resided in the, specifically the Holy of Holies within the temple. And once a year, the high priest of the people would enter to make atonement for the sins of all the people. But what we learn about in Hebrews and what the author has been writing about for chapters and chapters leading up to this part in chapter 10 is that in the death of Jesus, the way to the presence of God has been opened. That when Jesus took the penalty of sin upon himself on the cross, that curtain that divided the people from the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, that curtain was literally torn in two from top to bottom. And that Jesus, as both the victim, as both the sacrifice and the high priest, by his flesh and blood has opened, as it says here in verse 20, a new and living way to the presence of God. So it is impossible to overstate the significance of this for our worship as God's people 
in this time and place. It means that our worship, when we do that, is the enjoyment of these new covenant privileges of access to the presence of God. That we don't need other human mediators or other kinds of sacrificial systems to intercede for us or to mediate between us and God. That we can have, as it says here, a full assurance of our faith. This is a beautiful reality. But it's one that Western culture has privatized and individualized in a way that that was never meant to be. So, no, you do not need another human mediator between yourself and God. But you are saved, you experience the salvation of God as a people, in a community. You are, you are part of, when you put your faith in Jesus, you become part of a people purified and cleansed by Jesus. And with, that, with this curtain torn, think about this idea of being able to draw near. With this curtain torn, where does the presence of God now dwell? It dwells in us. It dwells in us. The Spirit of God dwells in you. But this, too, gets hyper-individualized. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, the Apostle Paul writes about this reality. He says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? But the yous in that verse are plural. They're not Singular. It's you collectively are God's temple. God's spirit collectively dwells in you. So to borrow my wife's native tongue of Texan, all y'all. It's God's spirit dwells in all y'all. All y'all are the temple of God. The same plural language is employed throughout this text in Hebrews. Brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter... Let us, since we have a great high priest, let us draw near with our hearts sprinkled clean, our bodies washed with pure water. So there are individual pursuits that are very rich and necessary that that involve drawing near to God. And we'll consider some of those when we talk about rhythms of grace like uh, prayer and Bible study. But we are meant to draw near to God in community with the people of God. And think about it this way. Individually, we are fickle, we are scattered, we are sporadic. Sometimes, I'm sure this is true for you as it is for me, sometimes we feel near to God. And other times, it seems like God could not be further away and more distant from us. But regardless of how you individually are feeling, when we collectively gather for worship, we rehearse the good news of the gospel that Christ truly has opened a new and living way for us to the presence of God. So even when, and actually especially when, you personally feel distant from God, simply by gathering with God's people, you can continue to draw near. You can, with confidence, enter into the holy places of the presence of God. And there will be days and weeks And perhaps for you, there will be months and there will be years where you will find none of that confidence in your own soul. But in gathering for worship, in hearing voices lifted to God, in standing with other men and women as you come to this table of the flesh and blood of Jesus, you will borrow the confidence of other worshipers. You will draw upon the confidence of the other worshipers in community. And like the lame man in Mark chapter 2, who had no hope of ever making it to the presence of Jesus by himself, the men and the women that stand around you can pick up the corners of your mat and can carry you to the presence of God.
Second, gathering for worship is also our primary communal experience of holding fast. Holding fast. The second exhortation comes in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. There is always enormous pressure on the people of God to waver, uh, to waver in their convictions, to waver in their confession. And what we read here is that one of our best defenses is gathered worship. Where the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, where the whole counsel of God, as Paul calls it in the book of Acts, is faithfully proclaimed, where the sacraments of baptism, which, as verse 22 puts it, bodies being washed with pure water, and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, the meal that commemorates and anticipates Jesus' flesh and blood, as the author of Hebrews just talks, talks about here, where those are faithfully administered, that becomes an anchor for the people of God. We spent uh, last fall, I know many of you were able to be here uh, for that, we spent last fall as a church in a series called Rehearsing the Gospel. And in that series, we walked through the various aspects of how we worship, the various elements of what we do as we gather on a Sunday morning and why we do them. As you consider this rhythm of gathered worship, I would encourage you to go back to that series and to think about those things again. Why do, do we do the things we do uh, when we gather to worship? And the summary answer is this, that we become what we worship. Uh, we become formed into the image of whatever it is we devote ourselves to. And so when we gather with the people of God to worship God, we become increasingly formed in the image of Jesus. And this happens, as we looked at throughout that series, by both remembering the past work of God and anticipating the future work of God. And in this text, the author of Hebrews offers that same remembrance and anticipation. So verses 19 through 21, look back. They're the rearview mirror looking back on what God has already done. Jesus has become our great high priest. He has offered his flesh and blood so that we might have confidence to enter the presence of God. And then to bookend it, verse 25 anticipates the future. We encourage each other, and it says, all the more as we see the day drawing near. And whenever you see that, that phrase, the day, in the New Testament. That's a reference to the second coming of Christ. When Jesus will complete the good work that he has begun of reconciling the world to himself, of making all things new. And all of this, both the remembrance and the anticipation, all of this is the content of gathered worship. That is what we do, what we rehearse when we gather to worship God. And doing that forms us, it solidifies us into those who know and believe the truth and who might increasingly hold fast without wavering. Again, we are prone to hyper-individualize this exhortation to hold fast. Our culture uh, loves superheroes. The, the one person who, when everything else has gone wrong, stands for what is right. And we have our share of examples that we look to for this, even in the history of the church. You have Athanasius at Nicaea. You've got St. Patrick in Ireland. You've got Luther and Calvin in the Protestant Reformation. And so it's tempting to have that same paradigm in our own lives, to view ourselves as being completely alone in holding fast, in standing for what is true. But the reality is, none of those examples truly stood alone. They all had people holding up their arms. It's kind of like in the Old Testament where the prophet Elijah complains to God, God, there's nobody left. I'm the only 
one still faithful to you. And God says, actually, that's not true at all, Elijah. Not only are there seven or 70 or 700, there are 7,000 other prophets like you who are faithful to me. And though we don't hear about these examples as much as some of those heroic examples, it is far more frequent, it is far more normative for the people of God to hold fast collectively. Holding fast is, in other words, a communal endeavor. It's a communal endeavor. There was an incredible story in the news about a year ago that I think illustrates this really well. Uh, last July, uh, while swimming at a beach near Panama City, uh, Panama City Beach, Florida, a family was swept out about 100 yards uh, by really strong uh, rip currents. And a few individuals saw this taking place, saw this begin to happen. They saw that this family was in trouble. They attempted to jump in by themselves and go out and recover them. But those rescuers ended up stranded as well. Now instead of six people in the water, now there's 10. There's no lifeguard uh, that was on duty that day. And because of the strength of these currents, the strength of these tides, the law enforcement that was called to the scene opted to wait for a rescue boat. They didn't want to add themselves to the list of, of stranded people. But it became clear really fast that these now 10 stranded individuals might not be able to keep their heads above water long enough for a rescue boat to get there. So what happened next was remarkable. 80 people, 80 people formed a human chain to stretch all the way out from dry land on the beach 100 yards out into, into the water to where these people were. And one by one, they reached each of those 10 stranded victims and they passed them back along that human chain until each and every one was safe on the beach again. This is what, at least some of what, we are doing in gathered worship. That, that in hearing the word preached, in seeing the word visibly in the sacraments, in proclaiming what we believe as we did earlier in the Apostles' Creed, we are tethering ourselves to the confession of our hope. We are remembering and anticipating the work of God, as it says here, that the one who promised is faithful. And as we cling to the faithfulness of God, we simultaneously cling to one another, so that even those of us who are furthest out, even those of us who are furthest out in the rip current might hold fast. And I would implore you to remember that when the people that you love begin to waver in their faith. When the people that you know and love begin to waver in their faith, it is not the superhuman effort of one hero rescuer that will bring him or her back. More often than not, those who attempt to, on their own, go out and bring a person back, they, ended up, they end up stranded as well. Another casualty to the current. In our day, as in really all the days of the history of the church, there is immense pressure to waver in your confession, in your convictions. The things that we proclaim and that we believe come with cost. Uh, they come with offense. Consider even a small sampling of where if you have not already, you will no doubt experience pressure to waver. That Jesus is the only way to experience salvation what we might call exclusivism, Christian exclusivism, you'll experience pressure to waver in that in our time and place. The authority, the inerrancy of Scripture, propitiation and penal substitution, in other words, that there is such a thing as the wrath of God against sin, you'll experience immense pressure to give that up and to waver in that. That salvation is by faith alone, 
uh, and not by our hard work or by our efforts. That God is, a, is one who judges the living and the dead, as we say in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, the reality of hell. Moral absolutes, that there's even such a thing as moral absolutes. That each of us is pervasively depraved. Each of us is pervasively affected by sin where we can't in and of ourselves follow those moral absolutes. Things like the sinfulness of sexual activity outside a marriage between a man and a woman. You'll experience immense pressure to waver in that. That gender is not fluid, but that God created male and female in his own image. Or even the sovereignty of God over every circumstance and every trouble and every suffering. That that there is purpose in suffering. That there is meaning when things don't go the way that we want them to. In the midst of friends and coworkers and neighbors and family that increasingly reject these confessions, we need a way to hold fast. And if we attempt to stand by ourselves in those things, we will fall, we will waver. And I love the way that Leonidas says it to the 300 Spartans. He says, the source of our strength is when we stand as a single unit. The source of our strength is when we stand as a single unit. When we proclaim with one voice the gospel of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is that gospel that we rehearse and that we enact and that we proclaim and that we are formed in when we gather for worship. Third, Gathering for worship is also our primary communal experience of stirring up, stirring up. The third and final exhortation comes here in verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Notice something really important here. You've heard me, uh, you've heard others from the front talk about these 55 one-anothers of the New Testament, and we'll actually talk more about those when we get to the sixth rhythm of grace, which is all about that, and uh, we'll talk about that in a few weeks. But two of those 55 one-anothers are right here in this passage. Stir one another up to love and good works and encourage one another. So the point of gathering for worship is not attendance. The point is that we are to love one another. We are to stir one another up. We are to encourage one another. And so the real reason for us to gather, the real reason for us not to forsake meeting together is because it is a primary means God has given us to do these very things. A primary means God has given us is simply to show up and to be present. So think of it this way. It's not about attendance. It's about the promises of a faithful God at work in you and through you. It's about the promises of a faithful God at work in and through others. And therefore, it is about attendance. It's not about attendance, and therefore, because of what we're doing when we gather, it is about attendance. And of course, as many of you well know, it's, it's more than merely attendance. Of all days, that's really evident to us today because we welcome several people into covenant membership. We've committed to far more when people come into covenant. We commit to far more than showing up in the same room together once a week. We commit to engage with one another in that rehearsal of the gospel. We commit to open up our lives to receive from the men and women around us. We commit to offer up our lives and offer up our gifts for the building up of others. 
So it's more than attendance, it's just not less than that. It's more than attendance, it's just not less than that. Tabidi Anyabwile, and not that he'll ever hear this, but I apologize in probably butchering his last name because I can never pronounce it correctly. But Tabidi Anyabwile, a pastor in D.C., a council member for the Gospel Coalition, puts it this way. Faithful church attendance is associated tightly with stirring each other to love and good deeds. And he goes on to say, being present, being known, being active are the only ways to make Christian love possible. Contrary to what some entrepreneurs, and I'd use that term maybe loosely, uh, in the church world where they do church completely virtually, right? You lose something when you are not present with other people. You lose something when you're not present with other people. There, it serves certain people that can't gather for very valid reasons, but generally speaking, it's not a good idea in my humble opinion, to remove showing up, being active. That's what makes Christian love possible is that we actually are in each other's lives and present with one another. At this church, you will earn nothing for gathering regularly. Uh, We don't have perfect attendance awards. Uh, We don't have like a special secret star chart in the pastor's office. (laughs) I wanted to, but John told me not to. He said, maybe we shouldn't do that, Matt. More importantly, you will earn nothing from God. And that's because, which is the primary message of Hebrews anyway, there's nothing left to earn. That the work of Jesus on our behalf is all sufficient. But to not gather faithfully, to not come and to expect God to work in and through your life, that is to cut yourself off from one of the most powerful means of grace that God has given you. And think of it like this. Into the framework of every single week of your life, God has established a rhythm for you to draw near, for you to hold fast, for you to stir up and to be stirred up. And therefore, to forsake the gathering of God's people is to forsake a regular and consistent outpouring of the very grace of God. And this is why, whether it's independence or ignorance or woundedness, when it seems like your best option when it seems maybe even like your only option is to withdraw. Don't. Don't withdraw. Keep gathering because the risks of gathering aren't even worth comparing with the risk of forsaking this outpouring of the grace of God. And few have grasped this, few have articulated this as well as Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So let me close this morning with his words. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, It is by the grace of God that a congregation is permitted to gather visibly in this world to share God's word and sacrament. Not all Christians receive this blessing. The imprisoned, the sick, the scattered lonely, the proclaimers of the gospel in heathen lands stand alone. They know that visible fellowship is a blessing. They remember, as the psalmist did, how they went with the multitude to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise. And Bonhoeffer goes on to say, Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living in common Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare it is grace and nothing but grace. So church... Jesus has opened a new and living way to God. So let us draw near. 
and let us hold fast. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works. May we never neglect meeting together, but instead, may we praise God's grace from the bottom of our hearts for the gift that it is to gather and worship. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. It is, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer so aptly put it, nothing but grace, Father, that we can gather and to proclaim your great glory and grace. That we can gather and rehearse the good work of Jesus. That he has given his body, that he has shed his blood to redeem and to reconcile all that sin is fractured and corrupted. And we pray as the author of Hebrews has exhorted the original audience, that we would be exhorted this morning to not forsake, to not neglect the gathering of your people in worship. May it be for us that means of drawing near to you together. And I pray that we would pick each other up by the corners of our mats when we feel no confidence in our own soul, that we would together draw near, that we would hold fast in the face of pressure to waver that you are the one who is faithful, that we would declare it, be formed in it, we would hold fast. And I pray that we would also stir one another up, that we would be used by you in each other's lives to encourage one another, and all the more as we anticipate that day that you come again for your people. Thank you for the great gift it is to gather. Help us to now celebrate that even more as we come to this table of your flesh and blood. We pray that, Jesus, in your name. Amen.